This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Hello and welcome to The Sidebar, presented by True Crime Daily, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I am your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. You can find me at joshuaritter.com. We are recording this on Friday, April 14th, 2023, and in this week's episode, we have breaking news in the shocking verdict for a man accused in a fatal stabbing following a series of confrontations that escalated on social media, as well as the judge's ruling in the retrial of actor Danny Masterson, allowing evidence related to the Church of Scientology as the actor will once again be tried for three counts of rape. But first, graphic evidence presented in the murder trial of alleged doomsday killer Lori Vallow. Today, we are honored to be joined by Kelly Hyman, a civil attorney, entrepreneur, and legal analyst you can catch on Court TV and other outlets. Kelly, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's so nice to see you, Josh. Absolutely. We've been looking forward to this. And before we begin, Kelly, you have some exciting news that I was honored to be a part of, but please tell us about the premiere of your new podcast, Once Upon a Crime in Hollywood. Well, thank you so much, Josh. And you played a key role in it. The podcast is called Once Upon a Crime in Hollywood, the Ronnie Chasen story. And for some of you, uh, Ronnie Chasen was a PR person well-known, and she was killed in Beverly Hills, California. And so we discussed this case. We have her family members appear with us. We have some legal analysts. You can catch it on iHeart and other places where podcasts are streaming. And I hope that you will join it and listen in and tell us, do you think the case should be reopened or should it remain closed? And I got to tell you, I, I remember this when it took place because it really did kind of make local news, even national news. But certainly here in Hollywood, people were just there was so much intrigue surrounding it. But I had no idea to the kind of um, scandal and conspiracy that really surrounded her killing until having done the podcast. And I, I have not heard the finished product and I'm really looking forward to it. So thank you again for that. And we look forward uh, to hearing that that podcast premiering um, this weekend. Uh, but let's tur- jump right into these stories. Kelly, we're really here, uh, curious to hear your opinion. I know you've been following these cases closely. So first we go to Boise, Idaho, where the murder trial for alleged doomsday killer Lori Vallow is underway 
where jurors were shown graphic images from the crime scene where her two young children were discovered. Vallo and her fifth husband, Chad Daybell, are charged with the murder uh, for the deaths of Vallo's son, JJ, and daughter, Ty Lee, along with the death of Chad's late wife, Tammy Daybell. In vivid testimony, a Idaho homicide detective took the stand to describe the gruesome scene where the children were found. According to police, Lori's seven-year-old son, JJ, was found in his pajamas. This was heartbreaking to me, the way it was described. He said that he saw a small child in red pajamas with duct tape covering his mouth and binding his hands and feet. His body was partially decomposed when it was discovered, and his remains had been placed in a black plastic bag uh, before they were buried near a tree on Chad Daybell's property. The remains uh, of Lori's 17-year-old daughter, Ty Lee, were found dismembered and burned in a melted green bucket that was buried in a different location on that same property. Vallow's defense objected to the photos, even asking if Vallow could be excused from the day's testimony. However, a judge rejected the request, citing the need for Vallow's presence to ensure a fair trial. Chad and Lori allegedly shared extremist religious views and reportedly feared that dark spirits could possess the living, turning them into, quote, zombies, and the only way to free the possessed was by killing their earthly bodies. Vallow has undergone multiple mental health evaluations and was hospitalized in an attempt to restore her competency before trial. Vallow and Debo have both pled not guilty to the charge to the charges and are being tried separately, with a judge recently ruling last month that Lori would not face the possibility of the death penalty if convicted. All right, Kelly, let's first talk about um, this bizarre request made by Vallow's attorney that she be excused from being present during the trial for this uh, graphic testimony. Are, are you, first of all, surprised by the request? Are you surprised by the judge's ruling? Do you think he made the right decision? Well, first off, my thoughts and prayers go to the family members to lose such young kids. It's just it's absolutely you know, heart, heartbreaking in regards to the judge's ruling. Um, I believe the judge is on solid ground based on the state court law. Though I don't practice in that state and I'm not an attorney in that state. From what I understand, there are certain procedures in place in that state where a person is when they're charged with a crime, they need to be at all of the proceedings in regards to the trial itself, that it is a requirement. And so therefore, based on that, the judge ruled that she could not. Now, there's some speculation as to why, in fact, her attorney wanted her to ask the courts for her to leave the trial. Some say, well, I wasn't in the courtroom, that she wasn't very emotional for part of the day, a part of the morning. And so to to help with that, to ask for her to leave, but also the fact that maybe it was very emotional for her and upsetting and people handle emotion differently. It's that old saying goes that sometimes people get at funerals, they start to laugh um, because of just the nervousness or, or upsetness towards it. But yes, um, to answer your question, I do believe the judge is on solid ground. And because of the pictures being so gruesome, I'm not surprised by the fact that her attorney asked for her not to be um, in the courtroom, potentially to distance herself from it, or also because of the emotional distress it was causing to her. Yeah, I, I want to get into those theories that have kind of been circulating a little bit more. But but first, I, I, I completely agree with you. I think the judge made the right call here. 
Um, and it's important to understand for listeners, too, that this is about her due process rights. The judge is actually protecting her rights by not allowing her to leave the courtroom. And the reason for that is he's no one wants to go through this again. Right. No one wants to go through this kind of a trial again. And I think he wants to make sure that everything that happens here, if that ends up in a conviction, that that will be something that's preserved. And the last thing he wants is to allow something like her to not be present for certain very important pieces of testimony. And then that become an appellate issue later on that she somehow was denied her due process rights by not being present through all of the proceedings. So I think he absolutely made the right call. But to get to your point uh, about these kind of conspiracy theories surrounding it, that was my other thought in, in why maybe the judge made that decision is this, the courtroom is not a theater. And so if you're trying to play to an audience, whether that audience be the jurors or the courtroom or the media at large, and you feel like it's not been presenting well, that your client hasn't has been acting kind of stoic during this testimony that even... Uh, spectators are breaking down crying. And so somehow you're going to put on a performance to have her be absent because she's too emotional. I I don't think the judge was buying it. Is that where you think he was going? Well, I I think that's a good point as as well. But I do believe based on the the law that the judge made a determination, as you point out about the due process, that based on the, the law in that state, that she is required to be at the trial. And so that that's not something where she could waive that that right. Yeah, yeah. What do you think about the prosecution? There's all sorts of different strategies and how to present a case. Uh, Sometimes prosecutors just want to go completely linear. They want to start from as as close to the beginning of the story as it were as they can and then progress along and allow the jurors to kind of have the case unravel to them that way. Other times they choose different tactics here. And I'm wondering if you think it was strategic. They started out with incredibly graphic testimony. I mean, the recovery of the bodies is probably as emotional and graphic as it's going to get for those jurors to see those pictures and hear about the the way in which these children were killed and then dismembered or buried. Um, do you think that was strategic? And then my other Part of that question is, do you think they risk desensitizing the jurors by bringing this stuff up too early? Well, I definitely, definitely think it was a strategy. So there, there's some school of thought to say you start with your strongest um, argument and then you also end with your your strongest um, argument so that that way somewhere in, in between in the middle, things can get lost. But I definitely, definitely think from a strategy standpoint that it was very smart to start strong. Now, if you bring up a really good point, if if they're going to constantly show, you know, images, then that's a potential of desensitizing the jury from that. I don't see that that happening. But from the standpoint of a strategy, absolutely, everything you know is is a strategy from 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 that from defendants, you know, opening remarks as, as well, uh, where the defendants. Um, counsel, you know, stood up and said, look, we, you know, we know a lot of information about you as the jurors. So let me tell you about myself. Let me tell you about the defendant and kind of to to build some kind of relationship or which I think was was very, very smart from that standpoint so that they become a, a human being. Yeah. 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 I, you know, with this type of graphic horrific 
testimony and, and evidence, you're probably right. I don't, I don't know if anyone can get desensitized to that kind of stuff, but I have seen in cases where it, it is a concern that the prosecutor should at least maintain in their minds. I, I know from personal experience, I had, a, I had a trial where when I was a prosecutor, there was a videotape of a very brutal beating of an elderly woman. And I played it, but then the defense played it again and again and chopped it down piece by piece and second by second and again and again and again. And I felt that that may have affected the jurors, that they just seen it so many times that it didn't have that same impact that it once did. But you're probably right in this case, if they're careful about it, I doubt anyone can get desensitized to that type of stuff. Um, Valo's attorneys, and this is my last question on this, um, have twice now declared a doubt as to her competency um, before trial even began. Do you think that this latest request, and again, this is just us speculating, but do you think this latest request for her to not be present because of her uh, fragile emotions, if you want to characterize it that way, is a precursor to them calling into her question her mental fitness again to stand trial? I think that's potentially possible as, as well. You know, absolutely. As as a you know defense counsel obligation is to de- you know defend their client. As you know, as a former prosecutor, that the prosecution has the burden, so they need to prove each element of the alleged crime. And the prosecutor, that's what their their job is to do: to lay it out for the juries to prove the evidence. And defense counsel is to poke holes at that or to show some other plausible way, whether it's someone else did it or someone else was at fault. And you can see the defense counsel's poking you know, holes. Well, she wasn't there when this happened or that kind of thing. That's something typical the defense counsel will do. But yes, Josh, you bring up a really good point. Yeah. And recently they had to uh, stop court early and i know those rumors began to swirl again as to whether or not she would in fact uh they would declare doubt as to her fitness and and halt proceedings so this case is scheduled to go on for 10 weeks we will continue to keep uh watching it and updating everyone for now let's move to vineland new jersey where zachary latham a now 20 year old tiktok influencer was found not guilty in the stabbing death of his 51-year-old neighbor, William Timmy Durham Sr. Latham, who lived with his wife and grandparents at the time of the alleged incident, amassed millions of views on TikTok for his videos featuring exotic and expensive vehicles. He could regularly be seen in the videos revving the engines of the cars and speeding through the streets to the chagrin of his neighbors, specifically the Durham family. In one video, Timmy Durham's wife, Tiffany, is seen in an argument with Latham over his alleged speeding in the neighborhood. The video quickly went viral, escalating the conflicts between Latham and the Durhams. We have a clip of that video that was shown in court uh, that we can show to you now, so we'll go ahead and show that. I promise you, you better back up because you're not going to like what's coming out. Get off my property! 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 Get off my
it does as the, appear as though the tensions between these two folks, uh, you know, warring factions here in that neighborhood was just continuing to rise. Uh, this culminated in a confrontation in which the entire Durham family, allegedly unarmed, went to Latham's house, leading to an altercation that left Timmy Durham dead from multiple stab wounds. Latham claimed self-defense in the incident, alleging that he armed himself with a four-inch knife and a stun gun out of fear that he was going to be attacked by the family. After officers responded to the scene, Latham was taken into uh, taken to a hospital for a concussion and abrasions that he received in the altercation before he was charged with second-degree murder. Members of the Durham family were also initially charged with trespassing and assault, though the charges were later dismissed by prosecutors. Since the time of his arrest, Latham has remained active on social media, even making a new account in which he posted updates about the case as it was going on. Kelly, I know you've been following this closely. Did this verdict surprise you? It did not surprise me. Um, you had a very, very tough case because of the fact that self-defense was his defense, right? That these people came on to his property. In the video, you hear the wife saying, get off our property, get off our property, and because of that, now each state law is different in regards to the fact of whether you have an obligation to retreat, to go away and go inside, or you have the opportunity to stand your ground. The jury listened to the, the evidence and the law of the law of that state and made a determination based on that, that it was in fact, he was found um, not not guilty. But no matter what, it's a sad case that, that the situation rose so much where someone had to die. Uh, it, it's it's sad, especially hearing the wife, the wife's testifying and just the, you know, losing losing her husband, you know, over this, that it's it's sad that it had to get to such such a level where someone had to die. Yeah, that that can easily be lost in these types of cases. That there's there's someone there's a family that's grieving still. There's an empty ta- uh, seat at the dinner table for these folks, and 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 it's something that's important to keep in mind. Um, you pointed which pointed out which I think is really the crux of this whole case was the idea that it took place on Latham's property. Um, and I want to kind of throw at you some scenarios to change the facts a bit. And, and and you tell me, having watched the case, if you think things may have turned out differently. I know this is just hypotheticals, but still, first question is, if it didn't take place on his property, would it be differently? And the other point that I thought was so uh, important to the defense was it was one against many. I mean, there were several people who approached him and they all kind of ganged up on him and he was fighting for, according to his own defense attorney, fighting for his life. Had those facts been different, had it taken place somewhere else or had it taken place with just one-on-one, do you think it would have been a different outcome? I think it would have definitely played a a, a part because I think that's something that the jury, you know, definitely, definitely considered. Um, But ultimately what that verdict would be, um, I, I couldn't speculate on on that, but I found it very you know interesting from the standpoint if he was at his house, this is you know hindsight's twenty twenty. Why is he in the garage or wherever he was close? Why not just go inside the house and call the yeah. police, yeah. Or, or or call the call the police and, and and have them and have them come and and do that? Why you know that's why have 
you know, the blade ready and the, the taser ready, just, just retreat and go in, inside, inside your house. Now, some people would argue what, this is my house, my property. I have a right to defend it. And so I don't, you know, have that, that I don't have to do that. And as we talked about before, it depends on where you live and in, in the state and what those laws are in someone's particular state. Yeah. Yeah. It, it you know, I can understand from a legal perspective, the the concept of stand your ground. And I think it makes sense. And I think it's important to have laws like that because we don't we don't want to put uh the 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 onus on the the person who's being attacked to somehow prove their innocence. If you're being attacked, you should be able to kind of defend yourself. I get that. But it does seem as though in some situations that we've seen, this one being, I think, an example of pushing the boundaries of that. And like you said, he easily could have de-escalated this, it seems to me, had he done what you suggested, gone inside, called 911. Um, but it almost seems as though, and a, you know, him being with all his TikTok followers as if he, he welcomed this kind of a confrontation or something because it might have made for interesting TikTok videos or or he was just trying to, to goat these people into uh, really reaching the 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 end of their wits which which eventually happened and and ended in tragedy um i wonder do you think there was anything the prosecution could have done differently here or is the, the facts were the facts and that's the way it ended up you know i think the the facts are the facts and and i think that the prosecution did a, uh, did an excellent job it was interesting when you hear him calling um the the or 911 police you know after after the fact that on the recorded, it says that these people had guns. When I watched the video, I did not did not see any any guns on them. It didn't mean they didn't you know potentially have it, but I didn't see any types of of guns. And so it kind of goes to your to your point. Was he you know um, you know wait, waiting for this or you know doing this? We can all guess and speculate. You know hindsight's twenty twenty. Um, but we just, you know, unfortunately, as I said before, we, they lost someone's life and the jury came back and I'm a firm advocate of the jury system. I believe we live in a great country and, and that's, that's the jury system of, of our peers is, is what it, is important. And they came back and, and said, uh, not guilty. Well, you know, have to, to see, um, you know, what happens with that, if there's some kind of appeal or, um, not. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I uh, The jury system, we have to respect it, uh, uh, stand by the decisions. I think the case, there doesn't appear to have been anything that was inappropriate in the way the case was uh, presented, so we should respect it. But if, if we don't have a chance to second guess it, what, what else are we going to talk about, right? <laughs> Finally, let's turn to Los Angeles, California, where actor Danny Masterson is set to face a retrial on the accusations of rape set to take place on April 17th. The judge, who also presided over the first trial, recently ruled that Masterson's alleged victims will be able to speak about their involvement in the Church of Scientology and the alleged effects on their decisions to come forward. Masterson, who is a prolific member of the church, allegedly met the three victims through the Church of Scientology, and two of his accusers claimed that members of the church intimidated them into keeping their allegations against the actor silent. While Masterson's defense has argued to keep anything related to Scientology out of the trial, a judge ruled that, and this is a quote, the admission of Scientology evidence provides an important context for the victim's delayed reporting of the crimes, 
which took place back in 2000 and 2003. Um, so we talk about a long delay here before they actually came forward to authorities and the judge felt that that was important to understand the context. After a hung jury in November of 2022, prosecutors opted to retry Masterson on the three counts of rape, which could carry a maximum sentence of 45 years in prison if convicted of all three counts. According to some reports, the prosecution may also be adding another alleged victim to their witness list. The jury in the first case favored acquittal for Masterson with votes of, now get this, 10 to 2, 8 to 4, and 7 to 5 on the three counts, all favoring acquittal. Uh Kelly, are you surprised that prosecutors are going to retry this case, given how kind of heavily tilted towards acquittal the jurors seem to have been the first time around? I am not um, the first. You know, I'm not the prosecutor or know what exactly the prosecutors um, think, but I can speculate the fact that the prosecution does believe that they can prove all elements of the crime. And since it was it turned out the way it did that they have an opportunity to retry this this case and they want to move move forward and retry the the case again what do you think about the celebrity angle of all of this and the me, me too angle of all of it and do you think that that played a role in you know we're talking about LA county here they're they're under kind of a microscope when it comes to uh, celebrity cases, do you think that played a role in the DA's decision to retry this, that they were not going to take another loss here on a celebrity case? Well, I hope that it's the fact that the prosecutor wants to do justice and wants yeah. to do the right thing for the alleged victims. And because of that, um, that they want to do the right thing and bring the case again. But since it is a high profile case, absolutely, people are watching on that. And in regards to the Me Too movement, you know, absolutely, that's that's a that's a, a factor because of here it is of, of the people that it's it's affecting. And so we're going to have to to see what this jury, based on the facts and evidence, um, decides to do. Will it be you know, mistrial? Will it be a defense verdict? Will it be for the, the plaintiffs? We're going to just have to see how it plays out in the court of law. Yeah. I imagine, too, and this is just me speculating, but I imagine that there was no chance of settling this thing in between either because it, you would feel that with those types of uh, votes the first time around with that kind of tilted towards the defense hung jury that they felt very emboldened and they probably were coming to the prosecution with the idea of we're not accepting anything or if it was it was going to be some very low crime that you know wouldn't affect his career and they probably were at an impasse that the the prosecution almost was forced into this that's my speculation i don't have any inside knowledge i'm just kind of going off of what i think took place um, but let's talk about retrials for a, a little bit. I don't know if you have experience in this. I have a little bit of experience. And I'm curious to to see who you think this might favor. And I'll kind of shade you with my thoughts a little bit initially is that now you've got victims and witnesses who have testified several times. So they've got their police report. They've got the preliminary hearing from the first trial. They've got the first trial transcript. Now they're going to have a preliminary hearing in this trial. And then by the time they go to trial, there are so many prior instances of them giving testimony that if you're a smart defense attorney, 
there's going to be a lot of opportunity for impeaching them on prior inconsistent statements. So in my view, it probably helps the defense a little bit. But I don't know. What do you think? See, I have to uh, disagree with you on that. Yeah, on please. I, 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 def- I think that um, it helps the prosecution because the prosecution brought the case. They can, and, and if they potentially talk to the jurors after after their case, uh, you know, about it, whether that's, you know, allowed and procedurally, you know, to, to do that or the jurors spoke to them, they can get a sense of what they missed or what yeah. they did incorrectly. And so some would say the second time's the charm, right? At first, you don't succeed, try and try again. So I, I think that definitely it's going to help the prosecution to lay out their case and, and make sure that they cross every T and dot every I. From your standpoint about the defense, absolutely, I you know see that 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 point of them being very conscious about you know potentially impeaching the people, but I'm sure the prosecution will you know realize that and make sure that they have all the testimony and make sure that everything's you know correct and and, and accurate and really make sure when they bring this case that they have everything they they need. Yeah, no, you make a really good point, and and for for. People who are listening who may not have experience ever having sat on a jury, that happens quite routinely that after a verdict, uh, the attorneys will come out and chat with the the jurors because they don't have an opportunity to speak with them during the trial, obviously. But afterwards, they'll go out there. I I did it several times and pick their brains where, especially on, like you said, a hung jury, where did we go wrong? What would you have wanted to hear? And I got to tell you, sometimes it's shocking, the stuff that you hear people say that you never had thought about that being an issue. And it was something that occupied a lot of their time in the deliberation room. So you're right. They have that opportunity to kind of fine tune this again. And not to mention, it sounds like the judge kind of gave them some rulings that uh, may have uh, been beneficial to them this second time around. So we'll continue to keep an eye on that case as well. But in the meantime, Kelly, thank you so much for coming on this week. Where can people find out more about you and where can they find your podcast? Well, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to see you and enjoyed being on your show and welcome the opportunity to come back again. Um, if you want to, you can go to uh, iHeart. It's it's going to be on iHeart, Apple Plus. Um, you can also go to www.onceuponacrime.hollywood, but you can also check me on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, all those different social media platforms. Fantastic. It's exciting stuff. I'm looking forward to it. I hope it does well. Um, I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ, and you can find me at joshuaritter.com. And you can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University of Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? 
discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.